This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Um, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 46 this morning. Isaiah 46. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Find Isaiah 46. We're going to read it together to kick things off. And if you're wondering whereabouts in your Bible it is, well, in my Bible, it's pretty much right in the middle. Pretty much right in the center of my Bible. If I open that up to you and show you visually, there it is. Equal weighting on both sides. Um, Isaiah 46. And as we're looking at it, I want to want you to be asking the question, what are they talking about? Or what's being spoken about in this passage? If you had to uh, sum it up in one word what was being discussed, what the theme was, what the big picture point was. In one word, think about this as we're going through it, what would you use to describe it, okay? So we'll read Isaiah 46 together, and I want you to be asking that question. What is this on about? What is the the one thing that we need to be taking away? Verse 1. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop down and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and grey hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey and from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. I'm bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. So, what was it then? Or what is it? That one word answer. What is Isaiah 46 all about? Anybody brave enough to shout something out? Okay, well, that's the right answer, so uh, (laughs) off we go. Time for tea and coffee, okay? Was it any other ideas, any other things kicking around people's minds? It's not a very fashionable word, 
which is why I'm a little bit taken by surprise. Sovereignty is a word that I think is, is it's just when you speak it, it seems like it's an old-fashioned word, doesn't it? Um, and I'm loathed often to use a word like sovereignty at the start of a sermon because I think it, it, it fills our mind with these preconceived ideas, these notions about what it has to mean, and then that's what the passage is about. I love the fact that in this passage, the word sovereignty or sovereign Lord is not used because actually it teaches us that truth about God just by showing us that truth about God. Sovereign is the word that we use to summarize something that is true about God, not something which we then unpack and say, well, God has to be like this. It's that way around. And we get to this lesson of God's sovereignty really by comparing God with other gods. There's a contrast that we're presented with. It's weird, I think. It's a, it's a chapter that is about God. It's spoken by God to us. It's about our Lord Yahweh, but it doesn't start with him. It starts with these two random characters who most of us have probably never heard of before, Bel and Nebo. And they aren't that much to look at. If you kind of erase God from the chapter and you just focus on the verses that concentrate on them, they aren't much to look at at all. They've got exotic names, but apart from that, they're really, really disappointing. We meet them and they're a pair of weak worthless, burdening idols. They're pathetic, they're mute, they're motionless, they're powerless, they're ineffectual, they're costly. And ultimately, they're shown to be a complete and utter waste of time. But it's not just Bell and Nebo. They are being used as examples of things that we put in our lives instead of God. These are prime examples, physical examples at the time, of idols, of things that we put our trust in, things that we put our faith in, things that we run to, that we go to, hoping that there we'll find satisfaction, security, comfort, and ultimately salvation. So don't get distracted by the fact that it's speaking specifically about these two Babylonian gods that you've never heard of. They're just great examples of the the things that we put in our lives instead of God. Things like relationships. We think, if, if, if I have that one person in my life, if I have this number of friends in my, in my Facebook um, contacts list, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll feel happy. I'll feel joy. I'll feel secure. I'll feel like I've got a purpose, meaning in life. We can put things like positions or authority power that people again give to us and we think well that's what I'm going to be that's what I'm going to be celebrating come the weekend isn't it the praise the affirmation of others there's so many things that we put in our lives we might not call them bell we might not call them nebo but they're there in God's place instead of him and it starts with these because really contrast is so important and so useful we can say positive things about God, but really when we see him in the backdrop of what the alternative is, all of a sudden his goodness, his greatness, his sovereignty becomes all the more clear. I was chatting with a woman in our church who's had a, an awful year, a really tragic, terrible year, and it's been so encouraging for everyone else to see how much she's spoken of God's grace during that 
that things that you expect to flatten people, of course she's wept. Of course she's despaired. Of course she's seen and known anguish. But she's lent on God. And it's been amazing to see her do that. And I was chatting to her this week, and uh, I w- I w- this picture came to my mind of, of a little torch. You know, torches are sold, and the brightness of the torch is described in how many millions of candles it is. Rob Brydon does a very funny, not Rob Brydon, who's the miserable one? Uh, Rod Gilbert. Rod Gilbert does a really brilliant bit about how many candles is enough. Well, if it's a sunny day, and you turn on a million candle uh, torch, sometimes you can genuinely wonder whether or not the torch is on. But when it's the dead of night, when the moon is covered by clouds and there's no street lights on, when you turn on that torch, you genuinely see the power of it, don't you? That contrast helps you to see something that was there all, be- all the time before. And so it is with our passage that Nebo and Bell, these examples of our idols, help us to see genuinely how wonderful, how remarkable, how special our God is. So there's this contrast, and they're used to show us that everything they are, them and all of our I- idols, God <coughs> is not. And everything he is, they are not. There's a contrast, but there's no comparison. And when you, when you kind of tear them apart, it's, it's, it's comical. It's pretty comical how useless they are, how ridiculous they are that they're even considered to be gods. Literally, okay, if you read it there in the first couple of verses, they are gods that need to be carried from place to place. Now, stop and think about that as a picture of how daft these things are. For the various religious festivals, you know, the public holidays that are going on in Babylon, they literally have to be picked up and with some effort transported between the different towns and the cities who would be borrowing them and using them. Supposedly, having them in your town gave you some sort of blessing and some sort of protection. But what a picture, a vivid picture of literally being carried around. Literally being a burden, literally being a weight, literally being something that just drags people down to get where they're supposed to be. Drags the animals down on whose shoulders and whose back they're placed. The images that are carried about are burdensome. They are a burden for the weary. That's what it says. Supposedly, they're supposed to be protectors. They're supposed to be things that keep them safe. Part of their job spec is caring for the people and the place where they've taken up residency. So, for example, if they're taken to the north, the north is safe. And if they're dragged down to the south, the south is safe. If they're in Ammonford, Ammonford is safe. That's the idea behind these gods, behind these idols. That's the theory. But then what do we read? What's the reality? That far from offering any added protection to the lives of those who are carrying them and housing them and worshipping them, they suffer the exact same fate as the people they're supposed to be protecting. If the city comes under attack, not only does the city still fall, but these idols get carried off as well. They're not rescuers. They're worse than that. They weigh us down. They cannot save the burdened. They themselves, it says, go off into captivity. 
It's almost as if more, more than rescuing people, they're adding to people's problems. You know, you, you get that um, line, don't you, that in an emergency, don't take any of your um, special belongings with you. If there's a fire in a building, just leave things behind and run out. And yet people are, are, are clinging to these idols. They think, don't worry, I'll get closer to Bell, I'll get closer to Nebo. Okay, they're ransacking, the, the city walls have come down, but don't worry, I'll get close to these, I'll hold on to these. And then everything is lost, including the idols themselves. Verses 3 and 4, not so with God. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and grey hairs. I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? That's why we're shown Bel and Nebo and that description, not so that we can pass our history GCSE in Babylonian gods or whatever it is, but so we can see something wonderful about God. They need carrying, and God carries us. God declares here, verses 3 and 4, all the things that you end up having to do for those idols that's exactly what I do for you. He doesn't need people to take him from place to place, picking him up, carrying him around, putting him down. Instead, we are in his hands. Kids sing it, don't they? He's got the whole world in his hands. He carries us even from before we were born. That's amazing, isn't it? The contrast couldn't be greater. Bell and Nebo... They need care, they need maintenance themselves, and yet God sustains us right throughout our lives. From birth right up until grey hairs. City is ransacked, Nebo and Bel, they're robbed away, but God is the one who rescues. God never falls foul of the same fate that we fall foul of. When troubles and strife overtake us, God isn't weighed down by it. He's really beyond compare. But anyway, the comparison or the contrast goes on. Back in verse 6 and 7, we return from God back to Bel and Nebo. And the description of how they've come into being in the first place. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer and it cannot save them for their troubles. In monetary terms, cost value terms, these gods cost a great deal. There's gold and silver which is literally poured out from bags, weighed out on scales to make them. They're heavy objects. There's a lot of cash value in these. They are costly gods. And yet, when you read 6 and 7, what's the picture you get? Gods that are utterly worthless. They set it up in its place. There it stands. It cannot move from the spot. It's comical. Someone cries out to it. 
passionately, fervently, can't answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. At the same moment, costly and utterly, utterly worthless. What a picture, isn't it? Of the things that we put in our lives that we think can replace God, can do the same things as God, can end up costing us a lot, that we can get so built up around, so excited about, so fervent in our devotion to it. And ultimately, it's worthless. It's immobile. It's death. It's mute. What a burden. And so they help us to see how totally and utterly dependent on us everything other than God is. To be made in the first place, for go from place to place, to be maintained, to be looked after. They only exist because someone else has made them. And that is not true of the Almighty God. Verse 8, focus returns and rests now on the one that we're supposed to be looking at. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Just listen to that, take it in. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. God's saying, don't, don't do a Google search for God and expect me to be in a similar bracket to anything that you'll find in Babylon, anything that you'll find in Egypt, anything you'll find in Wales in the 21st century. I might be able to use those things to contrast with me and show you how useless they are and how wonderful they are. But I am incomparable, says God. I am incomparable. Belle, Nebo, your husband, your wife, your job, your title, your fame, even your health, which we make such an idol out of. God says, don't make me laugh. None of those things even come close to me, says God Almighty. I am God. Get this. I declare the end from the beginning. It's me, says the Lord, not anyone else, not with anyone else's assistance, not with anyone else's permission or say-so. I decide the whole of history. Think about it. I mean, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? God is the one who makes known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Beginning to end, the whole of history, it's God who decides. As far back as we can remember, as far back as we can investigate, right to the end of days. What has happened and what will be, that's me, says God the Almighty. I say, and no one else. God alone, just one vote. My will, my mind, my counsel, that is what will stand. Verse 10, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Can imagine the people tending to Baal and Nebo and thinking, well, I wonder whether Baal or Nebo wants me to take him from there to there, wants me to do this to help him out, to, to dust him off, to polish him up, whatever it is. 
God needs no assistance. God needs no advice. This is the phrase. Go back one slide. God says, what I say goes. What I say goes. That's kind of how I understand the word sovereign to be when it comes to God. That he is the one who can stand up and say, what I say goes. And that's remarkable. Specifically, we see this played out in two ways. In Scripture and in Isaiah 46. That God is in control, that God is sovereign, that what he says goes. And it's with a slight emphasis on two of the words. So the first one is the I. We see God's sovereignty in terms of, it's up to him. What I say goes. God doesn't work off a committee. God does not work off consensus. God certainly does not work off a majority vote. God does not and will not decide how things are going to play out after he's taken feedback, after he's done some testing, after he's taken it to a focus group. It is God's will and God's will alone that will stand. The sovereign God says what I say goes. And that means he keeps his own counsel. Can I tell you, this is good news this morning for us. Because he isn't coerced into action by any outside agency. No one is whispering in his ear, telling him to do something different to what he has already decided to do. He is free to make up his own mind, to come to his own decisions, to have his own will, and not the will of others imposed on him. Again, just go back to the contrast. Bell and Nebo. Someone had to make up their minds for them. Someone had to decide which temple they were going to be displayed in today. Which temple they were going to be taken to next. I've got this picture in my mind of flowers kind of scattered and lights and candles and things like that. That's all someone else's decision. Nothing up to them. Their life, their existence, it wasn't in their control. They were servants of the people who'd crafted them. Not so with God. Nothing is thrust on him. Nothing is forced on him. It is I who say, says God. But then just stop and think about it and develop it further. It's not just what he says that goes. It's the fact that what he says goes. He not only has this sovereign will of deciding, but he has this sovereign power to carry that will out. How many times have you decided to do something in your life and and the reality is you've been utterly powerless to achieve it on your own? Utterly powerless to achieve it. There are a lot of people in our society who have this potential or have this opportunity of deciding things and yet they all rely on the power or the work and the effort of other people to achieve it. From the top highest level of our society, the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister can, in some senses, decide what's going to happen. And yet, she cannot say what I say goes. She needs other people to get around her. She needs other people to agree with her and to believe in her, to work with her and work for her. She may have the voice, but she doesn't have the strength, the power that God has to carry things out. That's true in kind of a more local area as well, isn't it? 
I don't really understand the structure of the police. Um, but presumably there's someone in the police who decides something, but he's completely and utterly dependent on his officers carrying it out. It's true even in smaller institutions like local churches, that we have leaders who make decisions, but without people to live that out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Trust, if you want an idea, by all means, come and speak to me and Phil. We've got lots of great ideas for you, but we can't do it on our own. We need you guys. I need my congregation in, Am in uh, AEC. We're powerless in that sense. We can get together, we can plan, we can pray, we can scheme about any number of things. And you see, we can think, oh, do you know what? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the food bank wasn't just open on a Friday? It was open on a Tuesday and a Friday. Great idea, Sammy. And you're in charge, so what you say goes. Only I need people to do it, don't I? But that's not the case with God. That is not the case with God. If he has said it, he will make sure that it happens. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, what that I will do. Now, let's just a little note here that I'm saying he doesn't need someone else to do what he's decided. He doesn't need to go elsewhere. And yet one of the mysteries we discover in Scripture is that while God is able to work alone, it is his pleasure to involve others in what he's doing. Even in Isaiah 46, it says, I will summon a bird of prey, or from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. God doesn't need them. He created in the heavens and the earth, all the stars that we see, the things that we look up at night and we are just flabbergasted by. He created the cells in each and every one of our bodies and how they work, the things that when we put them under a microscope, we are astonished by. He doesn't need these things, and yet it pleases him sometime to use other people to achieve his ends. I think this is actually an outworking of the Trinity. You know that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit always working in perfect cooperation with one another, with this one will, doing different things in their persons, but having this one mind. I think it's an outworking of that, that God takes what he has created and says, you know what, I'm going to use you to do that which I have said. It's still him achieving it, but it's us being called to be co-laborers with God in the work of advancing his kingdom, of sharing the gospel, of fighting injustice, and so on. And it's not because God needs it. It's clear, or it should be clear to us as day, that God doesn't need us to work on his behalf, but because he graciously invites us and involves us. It's our privilege as people who are adopted into God's family to work with him. I was trying to think of an example of this where you don't need help, but sometimes you'd invite help even if it slows things down. And as Phil mentioned, I've got some kids. I've got a young boy, six years old, Caleb. And uh, sometimes it's nice as a father just to involve him in what's going on. I've got a job to do. And, uh, do you know, I think to myself, let's get Caleb involved. Let's ask him to pick up a tool to carry this from here to there. 
I don't need him in any way, shape or form to get that job done. In fact, it slows me down. <laughs> in fact, it's a lot more pain, a lot more effort for that to happen because I'm a father. And I love spending time with him. And I love for him to be learning and to be involved in what's going on. I invite him in. And it's a bit like that with God and us. He is sovereign in his power, in his might, in his control. He doesn't need any help. What he says goes. And yet sometimes he calls us and invites us to be a part of that. To be involved in everything that he is doing. And that he has sovereignly decided Nebo, it's a good name. Belle, for my favourite Disney film. <laughs> but God looks at them and he says, don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. Poured out, picked up, carried around. What I say goes. Now, Phil mentioned it earlier, that when we live our lives... And we think to ourselves, well, God is sovereign. That means he's decided everything that's going to happen. He's powerful to do everything that he wants. And yet life hurts or life is difficult. Does that ever make us stop and think, well, God doesn't seem very good then. If that's true, if what you're saying is true, what God is declaring in Isaiah 46 is more than just propaganda, that what he says goes... Then why, Lord? Why? It can seem actually like a little bit of bad news, can't it? Not good news to us as Christians, but bad news. God doesn't care anymore then, because life sucks. Or God, God isn't as loving as he claims to be because life hurts. Let me just take a second then, as I close to think about why this is really good news for us. Why this is really great news. He's consistent. He's calm. He's all these things. Verse 12 and verse 13. He speaks to us and he says this. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who now are far away from righteousness. This is God's message to us who aren't right with him. Who by our sin have been separated from him. This is what the sovereign God, what I say goes, says. I am bringing my righteousness near. It isn't far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion and my splendor to Israel. The reason the sovereignty, the what I say goesness of God is such good news is because what he said is, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to do what is necessary for you to be right with me again. I'm going to take all the, the punishment, all the just wrath that is facing you. I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to make it so that you can say you are saved. That my righteousness is near to you. That you are sons and daughters in God's family. He has willed to rescue and redeem. That's why when we look and we recognize that what he says goes, that is great news. Because what he has said is such wonderful news. I am not content with you being far away. I am not content, content with you living a life of death. 
I want you to live a life of life. I'm not content with you not knowing me. I want you to know me. I'm not content with you facing an eternity apart from me, but I want you to spend eternity in my presence. Salvation, the good news, the gospel. It's what God has said going. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read about God planning this rescue even from before the foundations of the world. That's how far back it goes. God had decided already, no matter how far we're going to fall, no matter how much we're going to rebel, no matter how far, and whatever it is, the junk that we do towards him, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, they haven't moved a single inch in that shared mind. They want us to be rescued, to be blessed, to be theirs. And then Jesus comes. I was skipping through a lot of the uh, scriptures, I know. But then Jesus comes. The eternal son is born into the lowliest circumstances. Christmas time, we celebrate it. But really, it's a time that's filled with muck, with filth, with squalor with poverty and even from that earliest age he's hunted down there are people who wanted to stop God's plan of salvation there are powers who wanted to do to derail it who wanted it so that whatever God had said or planned or purposed didn't end up happening they wanted to crush him and snuff him out before the right time had come when you read through the gospels you see that even his own family tried to stop him. That's astonishing, isn't it? The people who'd lived, slept in the same bed, eaten from the same table as him for 30 years, they joined in with the crowd who said, you're mad. You don't know what you're on about. Stop talking nonsense. They wanted him to come home and to stop rocking the boat. And he wouldn't. Isn't that great? Peter, one of his closest friends, told him that he couldn't die and that he shouldn't die and what was Jesus's response to that get behind me Satan Peter is the same one who took a sword out when they came to arrest Jesus and Jesus says no 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 I've decided that I'm gonna rescue you and ain't nobody gonna stop me Jesus was tempted in the desert wasn't he to take the shortcut, to take the easy way back from the, the filth and the squalor and the shame that he'd entered into back onto the throne of glory. Satan took him and said, all of this, all of this you can have, just bow down and worship me. Don't go to the cross. Don't die an agonizing death. Don't be separated from the Father. Don't bear the weight of the sins of the world. Just do this and you can go back to your glory. And Jesus said, I've already decided. I've already decided that I'm going to rescue them. And what I say goes. He wouldn't take a shortcut. He wouldn't jib out of it because he'd already decided. Jesus said this. No man may take my life, but I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. Doesn't that sound like the same God we, we read about in Isaiah 46? I have willed it. I will do it. I will achieve my purposes. When he's, when he's being judged by Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from on high. I'm not, I heard an awful quote 
this week. Christian leader saying Jesus was um, a victim caught in the cogs of history. And I wonder, have you, have you even read the scriptures? This is someone who's in control. Not someone who's picked up and carried. A certain group of Jews at some point in the, the first century said, oh, do you know what? We need someone to die for us now, so we're going to carry him over there. As if he's Bell or if he's Nebo. He's the same God who said, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are far away from righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. What I say goes and I say, I want to rescue you. No one tricked him, no one forced him. He chose to do it. And what's really beyond belief is that we fight against that. We fight against that with every breath, every fiber. We don't want that to be the truth. It's his will. It's what he said and it's what he's done. What a privilege to stand on this side of history that he has come and he has done it. It is finished is what he cries out on the cross. The innocent for the guilty so that in him we might become the very righteousness. Perfection that God requires. God our saviour has achieved it. I sometimes think that translation of the gospel, good news, isn't strong enough. It's wonderful news, isn't it? It's superb news. And that's what we're talking about, Isaiah 46. The great and glorious news that even though we are hard-hearted, even though we are stubborn, even though we are rebellious, God has chosen to rescue his enemies. And the one who has said it, he has achieved it. I wonder if you'll pray with me this morning, perhaps for the first time, thanking God that what Christ has done is enough and it is wonderful news. It is wonderful news to us that God is sovereign, that what he says goes and we can be right with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you first and foremost that you desire for us to know you. You desire for us to be your family, not your force. You purposed even before the foundations of the world, Lord, we can't understand it, that we would know you and know every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that wasn't just wishful thinking on your part, that it wasn't just pie in the sky, it wasn't just, this would be a nice outworking of human history, Lord, but having decided it, you are powerful and mighty to achieve it even at great cost to yourself, Lord. The other things that we trust in, the other things that we put in our lives in place of you, our bells, our nebels, whatever they are, Lord God, they cost us so much and they give us nothing in return. Lord, we come to you this morning as people who offer you nothing and yet you have given us everything. We thank you that Jesus was so focused on that, Lord that he was willing to endure not just the, the pain of the cross, Lord God, but the, the shame of the cross on our behalf. And Lord, that he had the power, you had the power in Father, Son and Spirit for him to be raised to life again so that, that resurrection power could be at work in our lives. 
that those who Paul describes as dead in our sins and transgressions can be made alive and lifted up and seated on high with Jesus, Lord. We thank you for this tremendous news. We thank you for it the first time for some of us this morning, Lord God. We thank you for it the thousandth time for some of us, Lord. We thank you that your love never changes. Your love never fades. Your love never goes somewhere else. But you have said it, Lord. I will rescue you and you have done it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.